of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, with co-host Tim Langer. Moin, moin. Today's episode will be talking about rehab and recovery for combat sports. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Amato, doctor of physical therapy, board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist, certified strength conditioning specialist uh, through the NSEA, director of sports medicine and rehabilitation for Fight Science Institute, and a retired USA Super League uh, rugby player, BJJ practitioner, but he also treats professionals of combat sport athletes from boxing to MMA, high-level collegiate athletes, and New York's bravest and finest. Dr. Jonathan Amato, welcome to the show, bud. Hey, guys. How you doing? Nice to be here. Appreciate you being on here and giving us the time uh, and just a chat. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us the story of Dr. Jonathan Amato. How would you get to where you're at? Uh, it's a long one, so buckle up. <laughs> uh, I started off, uh, I was a phys ed major from SUNY Cortland up here in New York. Uh, I taught for four years in uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, at that time, I was playing for that uh, USA Super League team, uh, New York Old Blue. One of our sponsors uh, was a uh, gym and PT facility in Midtown, New York. They let us kind of use the gym for free as, uh, as the sponsorship for us. So I was there every day working out, and one day the owner comes up to me and you know, asked me what I do for a living because rugby didn't pay anything, so obviously. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a gym teacher, which is why I was able to be in the gym at 2.45 every day, uh, like everybody else is still at work. So the guy, you seem like you know what you're doing. Why don't you, you know, go get, take your uh, CSCS from the NSCA and come work for me part-time? He's like, you know, you seem like you got a, a good head on your shoulders as far as uh, strength and conditioning is concerned, so um, we, we want to keep it going. So I took the, uh, the CSCS in 2006. I started working for him part-time as an aide with the physical therapy program, and within like three months... I quit teaching. I loved it. Um, so I was the resident strength coach and the head aide for about six years there. Um, while I was um, playing rugby and, and teaching, I got my master's at Stony Brook just in uh, general education to solidify my professional license here in New York. So even though I haven't taught since 2006, I'm still a licensed uh, teacher in New York. Um, so then, yeah, like I said, I worked there for uh, probably about six years and I was getting towards the end of my rugby career and that was really the only thing that really mattered to me for the longest time so I kind of just I did the, the work thing and the strength coach thing as like a way to pay my bills but once that was kind of coming to an end I was like all right what am I gonna do now I'm not gonna be a personal trainer my whole life and be a 45 year old guy with a bit of a gut and try to compete with the 22 year old guy with an eight pack so <laughs> yeah. I really loved PT I loved everything about rehab and the combination of rehab and performance so I just figured maybe I'll, I'll apply to school and try to uh try to get my doctor myself and do what the head of the other place where uh, I, was, I worked at was doing and Got into school. I was a little shy of some credits. I had to take about a year and a half worth of prereqs before I even got into PT school. Um, so that that brought me to like my to thirty. I was about thirty years old when I finally got into PT school. So I started a little late in life. But um, I went to school at Mercy College up here in New York in Dobbs Ferry. Finished that, and uh, now I currently work at Beth Page Physical Therapy on Long Island. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I mean, that's a pretty good story. I mean. I- and, and believe it or not, most PTs uh, have this similar story where they worked at a place for a while and really liked the PT setting and then kind of like, you know what, made the jump. And I mean, 30 years old seems old, but that's to me, that's right on time. I mean, whatever gets you to the point where you are happy with what you're doing, then it was perfect timing. Yeah, you know, we live in a society where we push kids to go to school right out of high school. And how do you yeah. 18 years old know what you want to do for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. 
I, yeah. I didn't even look into different schools. My guidance counselor in, in my high school was like, oh, you like sports. Yep. Oh, you're pretty good people. Yep. You should be a gym teacher. Okay. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, there's one school in New York that's good for that. What's that? Cortland. Cool. I applied. I got accepted. I didn't even go look at it. I was like, yeah, I'll go. Whatever. And uh, was, was there anything specific about your PT experience at that point in time, which draw you into? Yeah, I, I had uh, an unusual PT experience. So the guy I worked for in Midtown um, was probably the is, is probably one of the prominent PTs in New York City. Uh, the office was right on Park Avenue and 53rd Street. So we we're kind of like right in the heart of everything in New York. So we saw like famous people. We're talking like famous actors, actresses, singers, um, professional athletes, We, and then we saw, you know, Grandma Gertrude for hip replacement, but we saw like a lot of high level clientele. And uh, the, the, the guy that was the owner there, I was his direct aide. And like, I just, I saw what this guy did every day and how like people come in basically crippled within a matter of 25, 30 minutes, they're actually able to walk out of there and go home and do their home exercises and like the, the sheer joy on their face they had and the satisfaction he seemed to get out of it. I was like, I want to do that. You know, it's like, I think I can do this. That's awesome. How, how did it lead into uh, combat sports and combat athletes? So yeah, that's another kind of funny story. I wrestled my whole life growing up since like fifth grade all the way through college. Um, I try, I did the club, walk on the club for the, uh, the, the, the college team when I went and I decided I had been cutting weight for so long between football and wrestling that I was just tired of kind of cutting weight and I wanted to enjoy college. So I, I found rugby, but so when I went, when that was all done, <clears throat> I came back to Long Island and I, I always loved the UFC from the, you know, the beginning of it back in the days when it was like, you know, the guy with one glove on his hand versus the sumo wrestler and, um, and Long Island happens to be a bit of a microcosm for mixed martial arts athletes because wrestling is so big here. Hmm. Um, and there's really nowhere for you to go professionally if you're a good collegiate wrestler other than like, you know, UFC now. So it's, since we have such a good wrestling pedigree here in Long Island, it seems like the natural progression is for a lot of these guys is to go into mixed martial arts in some way, shape or form. So, uh, I knew that as far as rugby is concerned, the only way you're working with higher level guys is if you're out in Colorado or the, uh, the U S performance center, the uh, Olympic mm -hmm. performance center. So I wasn't making that move. My family's out here on the Island. Um, I didn't want to live in, live in the city anymore. I didn't want to work in the city anymore. Uh, it's just that the pace is a little draining. So out here, my chance to work with pro athletes was really, um, you know, maybe the occasionally you get a pitcher who's got a house out here from a Mets or something like that. But mm -hmm. my chance to really work with professional athletes was if I went the route with combat sports. And I, I started um, training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu about five years ago. So I, I love the sport. So it seemed like a, 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 a good niche for me. And uh, it just so happened that my last residency or my last rotation I did was with my, my current job with um, my colleague Mike Camp. He had over the last 10 years just built like unbelievable relationships with the, some of the foremost striking coaches on the East Coast, like Keith Trimble at Belmore Kickboxing, Tony Ricci, who's the strength coach over at Longo Weidman MMA, um, Longo himself. We got, um, you know, the guys over at Long Island MMA have, have produced about four or five UFC and, and, and PFL athletes. So I kind of stepped in poop, as it were. Um, <laughs> I, didn't have to, I didn't have to work super hard um, just because. Mike wanted to bring me on kind of right away because we were very like-minded. Both have a strength conditioning background. Um, both have a similar treatment style. So he kind of saw something in me and wanted to bring me on. And it kind of just worked out for me that the, the guys I wanted to work with happened to already be going there. And they, they, got, they gravitate towards me because of my background in combat sports. What's your role when it comes to as a PT with, uh, with some of these uh, combat uh, athletes and combat uh, uh, professionals? <laughs> Major well, it varies. So, so boxers are a different breed than than the mixed martial arts guys. So let, let's go with like like UFC fighters or guys in the PFL or Bellator. A lot of what we're doing is kind of dialing them back a little bit. All these guys are chronically overtrained. They're doing 
three or four training sessions a day. They're not sleeping enough. They usually eat like crap because they don't, you know, when they're coming up, they don't have a ton of money to pay for everything. So all their money goes towards training. Um, so they, you know, they'll do jujitsu in the morning, strength conditioning at noon, and then a judo class at two, and then a striking class at 6 p.m. And then they're teaching in between or they're working a menial job. So these guys are so overtrained that a lot of what we're doing is trying to get them to dial it back a little bit and cut out some of the fluff in their day to try to give them a chance to recover a little bit. We work hand with their strength coaches. If we're not their strength coach, we tend to – Mike and I both do that uh, on the side with a couple different athletes. But, you know, Tony Ricci is a big strength coach. So we work hand-in-hand hand with him and a couple of the striking guys just to be in constant contact and just tell them what we think they should be doing or shouldn't be doing or things they should lay off for for the week or the day or um, – you know, we, we try not to overstep our bounds and try to control what's going on, but at least give our input to some of these coaches. So basically you guys are the, are the medium between the strength training um, and basically the rehab side. I mean, again, they're not necessarily injured, but you, the idea is to make sure that they don't necessarily get there. Um, and you guys are uh, basically nipping at the butt as soon as possible. That's for a lot of them. We do get some guys that come in for like maintenance stuff. They'll come in like once a week or once every other week just to kind of get things worked on or check out any kind of asymmetries that might be a potential problem that we might see. But we do get a lot that actually got hurt in a fight as well. So we, we kind of have mm. both sides of it. From a PT aspect, is there anything specific about PT for combat sports versus PT for other sports than just the, maybe the type of injuries? Is that maybe other aspects which are different? Um, well, I guess that you know, it tends to vary from clinic to clinic, right? Like some clinics are very manual based, some are exercise based, some are some really still rely on modalities. So, I mean, we tend to be heavy manual. Mike and I are both trained under a French osteopath uh, named Guy Boyer. So it's some different manual techniques that you wouldn't see in typical PT. So a lot of these guys like that. They like that we put our hands on them. We kind of guide them into proper movement or um, try to look for certain um, inefficiencies in their whether it's their posture or, or their movement and, and try to kind of cater like a, an exercise protocol or, or um, rehab protocol to kind of like fix that for them. Um, I don't think there's any one specific thing. Nothing we do is super special. Uh, I think a lot of the reason why we see the people we see is just based on relationships that were made. Hmm, that's good to know. Uh, what are one of the, like the best... I guess, uh, in, in order to keep these fighters healthy uh, and productive in the sense, what are a couple of things that you guys typically uh, work on other than just the treatment side? Um, if they have some sort of, um, you know, strength deficit, we'll, we'll, we'll actually do just strength and conditioning with them. We have a couple of guys that come in actually for no PT at all. Like we're, we're their adjunct strength and conditioning guys. So mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of that for them. Um, it really varies. Like I said, a lot, most of what we do is, all right, what do you got going on this week? And like, you know, they'll, they'll give us the myriad of things they have going on and we'll try to like, Hey, can you cut this? Can you cut this? You know, this, I think this would be a good idea. Hey, do you have a nutritionist? No, you don't talk with anybody. You, what's your diet? Oh, hostess cupcakes and pizza. Like, all right, maybe you need to talk to somebody. The recovery is not exactly great. So call this guy. We got four numbers of four different guys we use or to work with that we send their way. So we really play a, a, a big role as far as being the the medium between the fighters and the rest of their camp is a lot of the fight world. Now it's still very old school and it's still no, do more, do more, do more, go do your road running for 10 miles this week before you do all your other stuff. So um, some of these guys are so set in their ways and it's a delicate balance that we have with trying to give our input as to where we think need to be changed without pissing anybody off. Do you feel like your background, well, now in, in BJJ, but also in wrestling and, and 
uh, as a practitioner, as an athlete, uh, you're able to have the floor more when talking to these um, coaches and be, as, as you're like the mediator between this, yes. your background and your experience. I think it's a huge, that was part of my goal was, I mean, I, I kind of was going to get into BJJ anyway, because when I stopped playing rugby, I was kind of missing that, that competition, edge. that contact and that little, yeah. you know, the weights don't do it for me. That doesn't take the edge off. I need something. I need to physically like be aggressive with another human being. That sounds a little weird, but that's just, kind of, <laughs> that's my release. So I completely um, understand. I need, I need to legally be able to do that. So, so jujitsu was the next best step for me. But okay. um, yeah, it definitely, it, 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 the fighters like it because they'll come in and say, Hey, a guy put a Kimura on me. I'm like, Oh, okay. So your, your internal rotator was, was smashed up during that one. And it's like, Oh, you know what that means? You know what that feels like? And I can relate better to them. So I think it gives the coaches a better sense of confidence that I'm not just some random PT who's never even lifted before or done anything athletic who's telling these guys to do their band work for three sets of 15 before they go into any of their practices. So it's, I think it, my opinion definitely carries a little more weight because I train. What would you find is one of the biggest struggles working with these type of athletes? Again, like uh, these guys, they're not <laughs> – they're not the same as like you know your soccer mom or your your, your business guy who hurt his shoulder to do, you know, on his weekend workouts. These guys um, are never a hundred percent. At best, they're ninety percent. Uh, if you're lucky, you get a guy ninety percent before a fight. They're always hurt, and mar- part of that you know goes into the whole overtraining side of things. I think that definitely plays a role, but it's also they're a tougher breed of human. So you know some sort of tendonitis or a jammed finger is not going to stop them from doing anything. Um, so it's a lot of kind of just figuring out when you come in and they say, you say, hey, how you feeling today? Like, yeah, I'm good. You actually have to tease out well, what's good. Like how's your knee feeling? What's your shoulder look like? How, how was jujitsu this morning? Oh, your neck felt a little tweaky. All right, why is that? You got to kind of like pull it out of them. And I don't know if it's an ego thing or it's just um, a lot of these guys are, are ego-driven at all. I want to put that caveat as they're the nicest dudes I've ever met. Most of them are, are unbelievable people. Um, but I think it's they just don't like to admit weakness, maybe. So they don't they don't tell you there's anything really wrong with them until you really figure it out. Do, do you think there could be more done in terms of prevention? If let's say a, a fighter comes in with a maybe different or let's say a newer or a different mindset, absolutely. And that's part of why um, my colleague Mike Camp, uh, Tony Ricci, Chris Algieri, who's still a, a competitive boxer, and uh, Dr. Corey Peacock down at Nova Southeastern University created Fight Science Institute, which is a, a an organization that I'm now a part of uh, by proxy from just working with Mike. They kind of invited me in, so I felt pretty humbled and uh, I was happy about that. But we're trying to normalize what goes on in a fight camp. Um, so you go around the country from like Jackson Wink to guys here at Belmore or Longo Weidman, and you go up to Boston versus Florida at AKA and there's different techniques in, as far as weight cuts are concerned, as far as nutrition is concerned, strength and conditioning. And don't get me wrong, the variability is good. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to weed out some of the dangerous practices that are still around from 20, 30 years ago that have been proven to really not be effective or even more harmful. So we're trying to normalize what happens in the entire fight camp for these guys between all of their different coaches, from the nutritionist to the weight cut guy to the strength and conditioning guy to their um, – their skills specialty coaches, and then their head coach, and try to just get all those guys together. Uh, so when they come to our seminars, they learn what the other guys are doing. So the strength coach understands what's happening in, pre- in rehab and prehab, and, and you know he doesn't get so upset when a, when a PT tells him not to do something. Uh, same thing with the nutritionist or the or the weight cut guy, so that everybody kind of gets on the same page, or at least at, at absolute worst case, they at least understand the roles of the other guys that are in the camp. Because um, up till now, for, for the most part, in, in fight sports, it's 
there was no communication. It was like he went to your strength coach who was 10 miles away and you went to your striking guy who was 30 miles away and your, and your grappling guy who was 15 miles away and they didn't even work out of the same camp. So there was almost no communication. So we're just trying to normalize what happens in that camp. And I think it's starting to come around. Like, we, you know, we're kind of not battling, but we're, we're in the shadow of the UFC performances too. They're huge and that's kind of what they're trying to do too. So it looks like as far as fight sports are concerned, it's starting to be more normalized and, and healthier and, and more effective for the athlete and not so detrimental. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think as you described, there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, is, is there any, anything specific you would recommend to focus first for a new fighter to, to prevent some of these injuries? Or is it like, as you described, a mix of everything you described? It's definitely a good mix, but I think that what they would do real well with is is getting on on board with an exercise physiologist or somebody who can kind of do a myriad of, of tests, whether it's a PT or an exercise physiologist, somebody who can kind of look at their deficiencies, whether it's mechanical, um, if it's movement, if it's uh, sleep pattern, whatever it is, and try to find out where their biggest weaknesses are and try to have that as their main focus for the beginning of camp instead of focusing on the things they like to do or the things that they think they need to do and just address what's missing early so it doesn't become a problem later on in camp. I mean, going back to earlier, one of your uh, one of the struggles was that you basically most of the time these athletes aren't coming in with, uh, with you or aren't uh, performing at 100% or as far as uh, 100% ready. Usually it's like 80, 90%. Um, and it's hard sometimes to get them to, I wouldn't say admit, but to kind of be aware of some of the things that they might be having, pains and aches. Uh, but I think a lot of that, I mean, you let me know if I'm wrong or not, but uh, that the fact that they have to handle a whole bunch of pain in order to uh, to compete, right? Especially within these, uh, again, inside the octagon and stuff like that, where these guys are getting pounded. And if they're being aware or, or if they're getting, if, they're, if their body is uh, putting to mind this pain and this ache, uh, then they're usually, their performance usually types to, uh, tends to uh, decrease. I don't know. Get me. Uh, that- if a guy goes in there and he, he, he tweaked his shoulder in jujitsu two weeks ago, and it hasn't been right ever since that's going to be one of the biggest things on his forefront of his mind. When he goes into that fight, he's going to be so worried if he gets his arm grabbed, is it going to be a problem? Is he going to be able to grapple the way he normally would? If he's a big grappler, now he can't go for his single leg because his elbow screwed up. That's going to be a huge thing on his mind. It's going to ruin his performance. He, you're, you know, the, the famous saying, Mike Tyson, everybody's going to plan to like, get punched in the face. Like it, it kind of has the same thing for everybody involved in fight sports. Like you go through camp and you can go through the tape of your opponent and, you know, what are they like doing and what are they most likely going to come at you with? But if you're, knee is bugging you it's going to mess up your own game plan because then you're not mm-hmm. going to combat that guy's game plan so you know having these injuries if they're a larger one or it's not like a normal day-to-day thing that they deal with all the time it seems to be a bit bigger it can definitely play a role in, in their psyche leading into the fight and uh you know that could have a detriment to the outcome of the, of the fight and a lot of these fighters start to build a pain tolerance right and i think that's one of the the issues when it comes to working with practitioners they're like okay what's bothering you and they're like, uh, in compared to what, like yeah. a uh, arm bar that I just you know uh, dislocated my shoulder or like uh, spraining ankle. So I think a lot of times when having these conversation with the athletes is trying to understand them, uh, their personality. I think is one uh, trying to understand where they are in their fight camp or where they are in their training uh, and where you play that role. Like you mentioned, 
it seems like the best fit when it comes to a PT or a, pra- a practitioner in this realm is understanding your role and understanding the other coach's role and how you can facilitate that. Because uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're all sitting at the same table, right, which is with the athlete in the middle, making sure that they're performing at the highest level they can possibly can and uh, getting them ready. It doesn't necessarily have to be 100%, but it's just performance ready. Absolutely. Uh, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with these guys and, and their pain tolerance thing. I, I mean, I think it takes a certain person to get into this sort of sport to begin with. They're not the kind of guy who shies away from contact or girl. I mean, I want to rephrase it, not just guys, obviously. Um, they're not the kind of person who stubs a toe and their day's ruined. You know, they, they push through a lot of stuff and it's, they have a certain mentality to begin with. And I think what helps me and helps me get to them, again, is because I train that way. I, you know, I, I'm in it. I, I get it. Um, I've been around it. I train through injuries myself. So I'm not going to go ahead and tell them, oh, that little that little anterior deltoid pain you got going on is going to ruin your entire day. So let's just rest for four days. I'm going to find ways to kind of modify their activity because I get it. So I, I understand it a bit more. Talk to me about, uh, now that you just mentioned modifications, because uh, it's kind of hard to, uh, one, simulate, uh, a fight uh, to modify certain positions. Like for example, uh, when you're working with somebody that's a recreational athlete or they're lifting, you can modify lifts, mm-hmm. but can you modify like training positions and movements? Let's say for example, BJJ, certain like uh, guards and stuff like that. Are, are there, yeah. you know, what's, what's a, I guess, what is the, the avenue or perspective that you usually take when somebody having pain or you're trying to normalize uh, inflammation or whatever it is, and you're trying to modify their training? That's actually a perfect question. I, I'm dealing with two guys with this right now, um, both are BJJ practitioners. One has an MCL issue, the other one's got an LCL issue. Uh, these, I'm finding these are more and more common in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, and other uh, grappling sports, but particularly BJJ. Due to the nature of some of the guards these guys hold, like the lasso guard or the butterfly guard or the... Um, you know, like a knee shield, these kind of things. There's there's opportunity for your knee to be put in different varus or valgus forces to kind of strengthen mm-hmm. that ligament. So, you know, again, uh, I'm not the type of PT to be like, oh, you have a grade two MCL sprain. Let's just sit out for the next three weeks and kind of let it heal. I'll just say, all right, right. well, you have jits tomorrow morning. Let's just make sure we don't throw a butterfly garden this week. Let's stay away from anything on bottom. Can you work on your top game? Can you work on your side control? Um, you know, uh, or or stick to your stand up if, if if possible, and just mitigate how much you're able to move around. Um, just you know, depending on the injury itself, um, knees are typically easier because a lot of the problem with this, like I said, is the MCL or the LCL, and therefore you just modify or tell them just no no butterfly guard this week, no lasso guard, no no rubber guard, nothing where it's going to put that ligament underneath uh, a tremendous amount of stress. Where everything else is kind of fair game. The shoulder uh, is a different story because when your arms, the different arm attacks there are in jujitsu, like there's, there's no way to really control what's happening with that person. Like they, they can't control what their opponent's going to do for an attack. So it's a little different as far as them being able to control what they're doing. So if they have the knee injury and I tell them to stay away from lasso or butterfly, they can do that. They can work on everything else. But if you go and do a, you know, a shark tank where they're, you know, they're in the middle and there's guys coming out every three minutes fresh and they're kind of rolling and prep for their and prep for their, their tournament or their their fight, whatever it is. Uh, it's hard to tell your opponent, oh, listen, just uh, no, no Kimuras today, please. You know, it's, these guys are kind of going for what they know or what they're good at or they're giving, trying to give you the best look for a fight. So it's harder to mitigate it that way. But usually for me, I just try to tell my athlete to stay away from certain positions that are going to put whatever their body part is that's injured. Uh, under the most stress and just try to avoid it as much as possible and if that doesn't happen then we'll try to modify all right so instead of 
you know, working on your jiu-jitsu this morning. Can you, can you, can you add in another strength and conditioning session this week and skip the grappling for the week or something like that and speak with their coach and see if we can modify their training protocol? Yeah, I mean, you threw out a lot of specific uh, positions within uh, BJJ, right? So the first thing I thought about, and I've worked with a few, so I understand. But what I started to realize, wow, if somebody really wants to work with this type of population, one, they either have to know the game really well or they have to practice. And I think from, you know, from the other question we had is to have that um, connection with the coaches, unless you are either practicing or have practice. Uh, it's almost like you can't be in that conversation. So um, I guess what's, right, a, what's you your right? you never, you've never been in that position before. So how are you going to tell a guy to modify what he does if you have no idea what the modifications are? Exactly. <clears throat> well, so would you say what would it be a recommendation for a practitioner that wants to work with this type of population? Uh, number one, I mean, I'm a big proponent of martial arts in general. I think it's great for overall health, fitness, well-being, mental health, the whole nine. So if you're not already a part of something like that, then, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is probably one of the easiest ones to get into even later in life because you can modify the activity level based on who you train with. So I'd say mm-hmm. that's number one, try to find a school near you and just get, in, you don't got to go, you know, five days a week, but go once or twice a week and just get, get in it, get amongst it and get get involved and see what these guys are going through and what they do. If you yourself are injured or you're significantly older or whatever the reason is that you can't do it, then at least, uh, you know, if you maybe you might just be a fan of UFC, but do you know the intricacies that go on with BJJ? Probably not. But so there are a ton of videos on YouTube you can watch on everything from white belt moves to black belt stuff all the way through in the gamut. You actually don't even have to go to a school anymore. You can just watch everything on YouTube. So at absolute least case scenario, at least go on YouTube and just you know, look at beginner level BJJ moves, intermediate level BJJ moves and the intricacies that are involved and the, and the modifications they make even via those videos, just so you are better versed in what's going on. So when someone comes to you and they tell you what hurts when they do it, you have a better understanding. Because if you've never seen it before, you have no idea what lasso guard is. You could even fathom mm-hmm. lasso guard is or, or a butterfly guard or uh, a knee shield. Like you, you, if you've never even seen it, there's no way you could possibly um, – wrap your head around what that movement is and what the body is doing in order to modify it for that person. Awesome. Tell me the the role that strength and conditioning plays not only in uh, the rehab for these athletes, but in general, just to keep them healthy. I mean, uh, I'm a strength coach first. Like I said, I, I got my CSCS back in 2006. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I was a strength and conditioning guy way before I was a PT. So that's the basis of everything I do. Um, I think strong body, a, a shored up body is less likely to be injured even in daily life, let alone combat sports. So it's huge. But the, 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 I guess the game is finding out the balance for these guys. So there is no real off season, right? So these, especially the UFC guys might fight three times a year. So they don't get, they don't get an eight week off season where they can really put on some good bulk and some good strength. They're constantly fighting. They're constantly grappling They're constantly striking. Um, they're, if you're in the PL, like we have two athletes right now in the PFL, those guys fight like every six weeks. They don't even have a downtime. Typically, a full camp is eight weeks. These guys aren't even getting a full camp, let alone a rest period. So trying to get them to get a full strength and conditioning program to get a good base prior to a camp is less likely. So it's it's finding that balance. Usually, we find a two-day-a-week full-body kind of strength training seems to be the best for these guys um, if, if they're able to get into it. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, some of these guys that started off in Brazilian jiu-jitsu never even touched the weight. So I, I, I train with a lot of guys that wouldn't even fathom joining a gym. This is all they do is BJJ five, six times a week. And maybe they'll take a striking class here or there. So trying to convince them to do some form of weight training, it could be calisthenics, body weight stuff, TRX type exercises, things in your home with a kettlebell, just getting some swings in just something to 
give your body a new stimulus to respond to to help just kind of shore up that machine, if you will. If someone is interested as as a newcomer, let's say in in combat sports, is is BJJ, let's say the the perfect entry sport for mixed martial arts, or is there other sports you would recommend first to maybe get your or try out first? I'm biased because I'm a grappler since I'm sure. two years old, so obviously I, I have a, a small bias towards grappling sports, but. Um, You know, you can get into any, I mean, boxing is part of mixed martial arts. So if you, if you enjoy taking a class and working on your striking and hitting mitts and hitting the bag, that's a, that's a kind of good way to get into it. But I think the most realistic, um, for the rest of life, let's say a street situation, you get attacked at a gas station or whatever it is. And someone's trying to mug you, like, you know, they're not going to step back to the three feet you need so you can get your hands up and start working on your combos. Like you're, you're more likely to get into a grappling situation. So the more comfortable you are being in close proximity and, The more comfortable you are being uncomfortable, which is a lot of what jiu-jitsu is, then I think you're a little bit better off. So, I mean, yeah, Brazilian jiu-jitsu seems to be, for me, the way if somebody's looking to get into combat sports, it's kind of the, the one of the best doorways. And if it's not really your thing, you don't want to like getting choked out or wearing a big pair of pajamas and sweating your face off, maybe wrestling is a better move for you. But some form of grappling, judo, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, something like that to me is kind of the – Not only just the entry level, but like that's kind of like the the base for all mixed martial arts. So if you get a good base with that, then sure. I mean, going back and and I see this a lot, especially I mean, in any athlete, right? Athletes can be really specific to the sport. For example, I played baseball, so uh, earlier on in high school, I would just do hitting, swinging. Yeah, I'll go to the gym maybe a couple times and train. Um, obviously, as I started getting older and I played in college, strength and conditioning was almost not almost was the forefront of that and then you also had your specific and you had your sports specific stuff um but like you mentioned a lot of uh fighters uh will will tend to just focus on the training hey i gotta be on the mat my time on the mat my time on the mat you know i have to work my grappling i work on my striking um but like you mentioned a strong athlete is going to be a more uh resilient athlete i'm not going to say injury prevention because injury prevention is not even we can go on a different tangent than <laughs> yeah. that. but um but It's creating resilience, and just because, uh, and just because you're not necessarily on the mat working on technique, doesn't mean you're not, um, should I say, improving your game, right? Just because uh, being strong and being well conditioned is one of the biggest aspects, I would say, in mixed martial arts. Because you can have all the greatest techniques, but if you can't last, uh, I don't know how many rounds it is, but uh, however the amount of given rounds it has then more or, less, more, or not, uh, or more likely than not, your technique's going to go out the window and there goes a flying knee into your face. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think, I mean, you, you made a great point on the fact that the strength conditioning and the role that plays and not only uh, the injury prevention side, obviously with the rehab and really getting them uh, as close to 100% as possible, but definitely as being part of uh, the training. It has to be. I think it has to be in all sports. Um, you know, too much of one thing is not a good. And anyway, again, like you said, we can go off on a tangent here as far as you know specificity. And you know, you get kids playing baseball year round instead of mixing it up like they used to. But uh, same thing with this mixed martial arts. Like I said, a lot of these guys, this is all they do. So it's just it's getting them to kind of buy in a little bit. And sometimes it's just you know, if I got a couple guys I train with, like I said, that don't like doing any kind of strength work. So it's maybe after we train in jujitsu, I'll make them stick around me for 15 minutes and we'll go over like a set or a circuit, just like push-ups, pull-ups, kettlebell swings. We'll do it a couple times a week. And these guys start to notice that like, hey, I'm lasting an extra 30 seconds in that round or I feel a little better through like minutes four and five. Like, all right, maybe there's something to this whole strength conditioning thing. And then they kind of buy in. And then they're asking you for a program. And, you know, so it's, it's, 
sometimes it's just getting people to experience it to realize the benefits of it in order to actually incorporate it into their their weekly routine. Um, that's hard to do. It's you know, good luck convincing a forty five year old guy who's been nothing, doing nothing but jujitsu since he's twenty that he also now he's got to go to the gym twice a week or just add something to his to home, just do some kettlebell swings. It's it's hard to get people. Humans by nature are habitual, so it's hard to get them to break habit. Uh, now that you mentioned kids, do you guys see kids at all when it comes to like uh, combat sports and stuff? I no, we see some kids in the clinic. Usually, it's typically like other sport related stuff: gymnastics, soccer, baseball. Um, I get. I think the youngest kid I've gotten as a result of uh, a martial art of some kind was I think he was thirteen. Hmm. Um, so not super young. Even they they start them super young. I know my school they start them at four and a half. So they are there. But you know when you when you're that young, you're like Gumby man, and like you're Gumby and Wolverine. You get hurt, and thirty minutes later you feel like hundred percent again. So. You know, the super young, we don't t- tend to see as much, uh, and it's way more controlled. You know, the the younger guys, you know, the the four, five, six, seven year olds are doing more like games and just getting to getting to know their body better and how to use their body in space as opposed to actually training. You know, they throw in some training here or there, so it's mm-hmm. a good progression for them. But yeah, we mostly see, I'd say, like you know, seventeen, eighteen onward. Uh, those are the kind of the combat sports people we typically see. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's just that we haven't really seen it. Um, talk to me a little bit more about this fight science thing and, and the, basically the mission that you guys have, which basically from what I understood is trying to get the fight camp to, like you mentioned, normalize, but to get everybody on the same page, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. At least, I mean, as best we can, we're, we're trying to create a certification and hopefully that, you know, people that attend the seminars, um, will, will become certified under the fight science Institute. And that's something else that can help promote like, you know, Hey, I, I do know more, a bit more about weight cutting or nutrition than the average individual who's got their cereal box, you know, certification. Um, it's just, you know, it's trying, like I said, it's trying to get rid of the dangerous side uh, of the sport, um, boxing, mixed martial arts, whatever it is, as far as like weight cuts and, and other common practices and just, Try to, as a sport, especially mixed martial arts, is gaining steam. It's becoming more and more popular than it was five years ago here in the U.S. It's just trying to get anybody that's involved in a camp, whether it's PT or strength and conditioning, weight cut, nutrition, whatever it is, just to have a better understanding as to what goes on within that camp and, and just normalize what's done. Now, there's no guarantee that people that come to a seminar or, or, or listen to any of us speak or it is are going to use the stuff we have. But if they pull one thing out of that weekend seminar we give – to us, that's worth it because you're going to change the mind of somebody who's now working with other athletes and, and you're preventing potential disaster. That, does um, f- psychological aspects play a role as well, like in terms of mindset, training? Is there something done in that aspect or is that comes that natural to anyone who chooses to, to perform a combat sports? I think it comes natural to some, not to everybody. And you, and you see that even in the high levels of UFC, the, 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 the mental aspect plays a huge role. Uh, some of them just can't overcome adversity uh, and, it, and shows come fight night. Others can. Um, in our – in the Fight Science Institute currently, we do not have a sports psychologist or somebody that works within that realm. I think it's a good idea. We probably should add it because that becomes a larger thing. Um, but it definitely plays a huge role uh, in fight sports in general. In fact, if if – fighting as fight sports athletes don't already have a mental coach i think they should and it doesn't have to be somebody who's actually a psychologist or psychiatrist but somebody who just has like a, a sports psychology background just to help them cope with a loss or uh, a bad weight cut or a death in the family during a camp that's going to kind of screw up the or, or some sort of other tragedy during the camp that might mess up their usual training protocol and kind of put a wrench in the works for them i think mental health in general has been pushed under the rug for many years. It's become to the forefront now. And I think it, it, it has just as an important role in combat sports or any other sport. 
I mean, that's you hit it around right the head. I mean, a lot of times the mind's going to give up uh, a lot more than the body will, right? We're we're going to hold ourselves a lot more, but especially when it comes to uh, fighting. I mean, there's a big mental aspect. The, the guy right in front of you or woman uh, is trying to almost kill you to a sense, right? Or, or really hurt you. So you have to put yourself in a, in a particular situation to um, really come up from that. And uh, yeah, sports psychologists are, like you mentioned, anybody that's just, even a practitioner that has the, like the mindfulness kind of attribute to it. Um, I mean, even in strength and conditioning, you're going to have that uh, mindset thing where there's going to be times where you want to quit and uh, where you start to improve your conditioning and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, mental, the mental side of, of sports, uh, it's starting to become a little bit more of a, uh, uh, a little bit, it's, it's becoming more of a thing now, but before it was just going to like no pain, no gain. Right. But yeah. what happens to the mindset of things, right. Being able to, uh, really be resilient within the mental game. Yeah. It definitely changes that. Um, you know, again, it's, it's getting, it's becoming different. Even when I was coming up with rugby, there wasn't the construct, the concussion protocols we have now in contact sports, which are huge. Um, which obviously that's on the forefront of mental health in general. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's getting bigger. The, the, the psychological health thing is, is more recognized. It's not just, you know, you tell a guy to rub some dirt on it and keep going. Like you actually, you know, take time to, to analyze the situation and, and assess and see how you can deal with it. And I think it's huge. Um, I have a couple of this uh, contact info where the listeners can uh, um, reach out to you. I have your email, john at strengthandrehab.com, right? Yeah. And then the website, which is strengthandrehab.com as well, and then Fight Science Institute, correct? Yes, correct. Awesome. Then your social media, Dr. Amato underscore PT, pretty much, right? Yeah, the one for uh, Instagram for me is Dr. Amato, A M A T O underscore PT, yeah. Awesome, awesome. I mean, the for the Fight Science Institute, you guys have like uh, reoccurring uh, workshops and stuff like that, or stuff that you guys have in the works. Yeah, we've had three seminars thus far. Uh, there were two here on Long Island. We just did one down at uh, Nova Southeastern down in Florida about two months ago. Um, uh, there's gonna be another one up here in the Northeast, uh, potentially in New Jersey, within the next couple months. But um, when that does happen, when we solidify it, we'll you know put social media blasts out. There's the the Fight Science Institute Instagram or mine. I put blasts on that all the time, or my colleague Doc Camps or any of the guys that do it. We usually, if there is something happening, we usually put out the social media blast to let people know. Awesome. And then I also requested a couple uh, book recommendations. And uh, uh, Dr. Jonathan Amato, he basically a couple of the ones where he mentioned were uh, "Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance" by Sue uh, Falsone, which yeah. is a great. Uh, practitioner himself and then uh, the performance cortex zach i don't even know how to say that last name scumbron 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 yeah yeah scumbron and then the seven habits of highly effective people by stephen covey yeah yeah those you said you asked for three i could have gave you about 15 but i gave you my top three <laughs> yeah that's why i asked for i asked for three usually i say two uh because people come little with the professional aspect of being a pt one is the actual practice putting you know modalities or or, or techniques into practice and how to work with a team you know super zone works over there at exos which used to be athletes performance and they work hand in hand with athletic trainers and strength coaches and coaches and so she kind of touches on a lot of that and and how to, how to work as a team member with the athlete and also how to use the myriad of techniques and modalities that are out there and when they're applicable or not. Um, so I think it's a huge book for anybody that's kind of just getting into the field and is just inundated with information, doesn't even know where to start. I think that's a pretty good framework. Um, the performance cortex for me is, 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 is just, you know, touches on the, the mental aspect of sports, particularly baseball in that instance. But I just thought it was super interesting as to how, um, you know, the brain obviously plays a 
the major role in, in how good you are as an athlete. You could take two guys that physically are exactly the same uh, as far as like strength and everything else, but there's that, there's the, that guy that's got just a little bit more of an edge to him, and they, they go over a lot of that in that performance cortex book. Uh, I think it's huge just to know that as a strength coach and PT that, you know, it's not just muscles, bones, and tendons and ligaments. It's obviously the nervous mm-hmm. system and the brain plays a, a major role in everything we do. Um, and then the other one, the, the seven habits of highly successful people is just a book I like because it's a good reminder when you get caught up in the, the crap of day-to-day life and, you know, you get busy and you got emails and texts and phone messages and, and clients and patients and family and house stuff. And, you know, these, this, that book just kind of gives you some, it's a good, it's a good grounding on how to kind of keep yourself level-headed and, and moving forward. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to look into those. Um, all right. Now this last part of the podcast, um, Basically, what we call speed round. Speed round is basically a couple of questions that we have here uh, just to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, and basically, we call it speed round because you, you have like about one second <laughs> to answer. So whatever comes up to, to mind is basically what you blur out. Um, yeah, it's just a cool way for the listeners to get to know you and for okay. us to get to know you a little bit more. Um, and then after that, we have one more little uh, small segment, and then we'll go from there. Fair, cool? fair warning. I curse a lot, so it takes a lot from me. It takes a lot of mental work for me to get off my language. <laughs> So now if you got me speeding up how I'm talking, I, I may drop a, a bomb or two here or there. So I hope that's okay. Cursing is allowed to you for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll get that before because this has been very challenging for me to not drop a few. <laughs> no worries. Uh, Tim, you want to go ahead? Sure. Uh, what is one of the things you would put on your bucket list? Uh, skydive. Skydive. Wow. I guess that goes with my next question. What's your greatest fear? I don't have one. Shut the front door. Yeah, I really don't, man. I know I asked the question about two weeks ago, and they're like, "We, you, you don't fear anything." I'm like, no, like bugs don't bother me, snakes don't bother me, fire, water, heights, I, not, nothing really. Okay, interesting. If you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go? Oh, good question. I would go back to the Viking era. I love everything Norse mythology and Viking stuff, so I'd like to actually check out if it's all it's cracked up to be, or if it's everything we thought it was, or whatnot. <laughs> I mean, with that beard, I mean, you feel you fit right in. Yeah, the beard's gone. My wife got tired of it, and I got tired of it. Oh no! About it. So now it's just like a, it's like a, it's a mere shadow of its former self. It's like double now. <laughs> um, here's another one for you. Favorite superhero? Superman. Superman. Wow, that was right off the dome. Off the dome. Okay, why Superman? Yeah, because you know, truth, justice, the American way. You know. Do good, help those who can't help themselves. You know, use your power for good, etc. Like I just, I always loved everything about Superman. Cool. What's the uh, strangest thing you have ever, ever eaten? Huh. That's a really. I guess a fried bug on a stick. <laughs> that was the worst thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> fried bug. Do you remember what the bug it was? It was cricket. It was disgusting. I'd, I'd never do it again. They say, you know, most things taste like chicken. I guess that doesn't go for crickets. Chicken. <laughs> okay. It was the, the spiny legs that kind of, it was the texture thing for me. I don't think I can do it again. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, with that being said, this last part is uh, basically what we call thanks. Here's where we give thanks to, or we give three thanks. And the first one is to you, uh, Dr. Jonathan Amato, for just, you know, taking the time to jump on the podcast, uh, helping us learn a little bit more about combat athletes and uh, the perspective of a physical therapist and uh, really trying to improve uh, our knowledge when it comes to uh, combat athletes. So thank you again for jumping on uh, the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, man. It's been an honor. Uh, the next thank you goes to our listeners. Uh, we can't thank you guys enough uh, for giving the opportunity to uh, to us to speak some uh, speak our mind, 
be able to teach and educate uh, via, again, via word of mouth, via audio. So thank you very much for giving us the opportunity, giving us this platform to, uh, yeah, to give this, uh, to give value and to really share our knowledge. So thank you very much to the listeners. Uh, the last thank you goes to our clients, our patients, our students, the people we get to work with on a daily basis and to allow us uh, to really share our passion. Because again, there's nothing like, there's no greater feeling than waking up and doing what you love. And to be able to have people that value that, um, it's, it's priceless. So thank you very much for that. Uh, with that being said, this is Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you, and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support, and see you on the next episode. Hold up.